0: Jocelyn zoffel at McMaster University here with the Living Theory Podcast. I'm not going to be speaking very much today. I'm going to be facilitating conversation between two scholars who are speaking on The Animal That Therefore I Am by Jack Derrida. So if I can
1: get Chandel to introduce yourself briefly. Hi, my name is Chandel Holden. I'm doing my PhD here at McMaster in English and Cultural Studies. Uh, my research looks at um, the use of war dogs in military propaganda and um, critical animal studies as a way to sort of challenge that propaganda.
0: That's really interesting. Thank All right, and Alex, can I introduce yourself briefly? Uh, Hi, I'm Alex
2: Busick. I'm an MA student here at McMaster in uh, cultural studies and critical theory. And my research focuses on um, the m- analogy between The holocaust and mass animal suffering and how the use of that analogy covers over or reveals certain knowledge about animal ways of being
0: okay good so it seems like we're gonna have maybe a very dark podcast today but that seems appropriate (laughs) all right so i want to uh, pose a very quick question to you guys Um, so specifically what are some of the challenges in reading a piece like this um, and then also, what are some of the specific challenges of reading a piece that is so clearly, um, kind of what we call an animal studies piece? What are what's
1: what's the background there? Well, I mean, to begin with, you have to grapple with Derrida, as you say, and it's not it's not an easy thing to do. Um, when he brought, when he started, you know, bringing his theory out in the late 60s in France, and then translated in the 70s um, into English, and it sort of took academia by storm at that time, Um, everything basically changed. Language began to be really understood as not reliable, and when you're engaging with texts that talk about this, in the case of Derrida especially, a lot of his work actually performs that unreliability, so it's not straightforward. You can't just read it and understand it. You know, it challenges that very possibility. So with that in mind, it, it you know, it's it's a difficult thing to navigate.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think that with this text text especially, um, because it was first delivered as a lecture, it can be a little more difficult to follow because he tends to jump from idea to idea very fluidly. And without um, the kind of logical consistency we would usually associate with other more I don't want to say straightforward thinkers, but thinkers who offer a little more rigor in their thought. Um, Not to say Derrida isn't rigorous, but he does force you to consider many options or many possibilities simultaneously through his language, through uh, employing things like double entendres or puns or through uh, creating words, neologisms, which are all apparent in this text as well.
0: Absolutely, and there's... uh... One of the things I know that I struggled with reading this was the kind of circular, the circularity of the structure of the argument, which from what I understand, maybe you guys can reflect on this a little bit, is um, is a French thing, right? That, that um, philosophers and theorists working in English generally have this very straightforward structure of argumentation that makes... easier to kind of uh, find signposts for what's happening inside of arguments, whereas French philosophers and French philosophers kind of um, in the same school of thought as Derrida tend to kind of keep coming back to the same points and sussing them over and fleshing them out. Is that generally?
2: I can definitely see that. Um, I wouldn't say it's only French philosophy. It's definitely closer to uh, continental European philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I know that Derrida will definitely draw that sort of strategy from Heidegger. Um, He tries to constantly return to questions because those questions are very difficult to answer. And so it seems like he's being unproductive, but in reality, every time we circle back, we come at this question with new information and with new perspectives on how to answer it or other possibilities of answering it. Um, So in that way, yes, it can be confusing, a little disorienting, um, but there's also a sense that you have to go with the flow and kind of recognize that instead of trying to reach a conclusion through steps, it's about reaching a point of understanding through the actual um, work itself.
1: Yeah, it's it's really process-oriented. Um, when I first began reading Derrida, which this years ago was the first text that sort of I engaged with of his... Um, it, I was trying to understand it word by word, line by line. And as I've gained more experience working with his writing, um, I've come to realize that he's actually a really generous writer who uh, reasserts these questions over and over and over again. And as Alex was saying, you know, you you take the information that you've slowly processed, accumulated, and apply it again to the same question. So it, it, it unfolds the question Um sometimes in really beautiful ways, but it is, it is challenging. Yeah.
0: Okay. Excellent. So if you guys can, uh, so first of all, this is excellent for anybody listening who might have read this piece and struggled or thought maybe they just like didn't know how to read theory, right? That it's a difficult text to navigate. Um, it's good to hear that from experts such as yourselves. And also can you guys tell me a little bit about like, what is animal studies? Uh, how does this piece fit in
1: with this field? Sure, yeah. Animal studies has a bunch of different names. Um, some people call it critical animal studies, some people call it human animal studies. I think the category, the field itself, is still really um, shifting. It's very interdisciplinary, so it hasn't necessarily solidified into any kind of name. Um, but the idea really is to look at how the so-called animal um is apparent in literature, culture, um, history. You know, what what we think of animals, how animals are used in society. Um, it's often premised on ethics, but not necessarily.
2: Yeah, and I would say that critical animal studies today is very indebted to Derrida and this text specifically. Um, Derrida was probably one of the first uh, mainstream thinkers to actually question how we think about animals and how we think about animals in relation to humans and that sort of dichotomy between humanity and animality that we can take for granted a lot of the time Um, but specifically there's also divides in terms like Chandel was saying of thinking about animals in terms of ethics and also thinking about animals in terms of ontology and what they are and I think that for some thinkers or people who are coming to animal studies for the first time might be a little surprised that some of the work on ethics about animals are not willing to uh, support sort of discourses on animal rights. Um, There is some discussion about whether animal rights is a sort of imposition of human values onto animal life and whether it's really um, productive to offer animals a part in this system that overall exploits them.
1: I'll just add something else, though. Um, in, in terms of speaking of animal studies as being indebted to Derrida, um, Haraway, Donna Haraway, has really brought attention to the fact that this kind of thinking and research, um, thinking the animal, so to speak, uh, actually really does predate Derrida. Um, there's a lot of ecofeminist writers doing this kind of work. Um, very similar work, although not necessarily as wordy or post-structuralist as Derrida but because they were sort of working within a marginalized field um it didn't attract the same kind of attention until Derrida shows up and says hey look at this and then everybody's like yes Derrida is talking let's listen.
0: Sure 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 so and and that's true for a lot of um for many fields that women have participated in, right? That there's a point of legitimation that usually comes with someone um, with cultural capital like Derrida. Usually that person historically has been male, but I think maybe that's changing, hopefully, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's take some time to kind of really get into the text and explore some of the minutia of what's uh, going on in this argument. Um, so what's what's one uh, easy way to get into a really challenging, if um,
1: albeit important, piece? Well, there's a really remarkable moment right at the beginning of uh, the essay that has Derrida standing naked in front of his cat. And he's very, very clear to say that this cat is a real cat. It's not just the idea of a cat. It's It's a cat that he... Um, in effect shares his life with. And this moment where he notices the cat watching him strikes him as um, in some ways sort of shameful as I guess there's uh, even a sort of threatening to it where not threatening in the sense um, of danger physically, but it's an existential vulnerability. you know he recognizes that this cat, this being, is just an animal um, is looking at him and seeing him and he doesn't know what that look means
2: yeah and I think that's part of the uh, the. he mentions the word passion of the animal and it's part of the passion of the moment as well like Derrida is here in this real life situation which I think many people have probably experienced too and that's a really easy way to relate to it where they will be walking into the shower let's say and an animal, cat, dog, any sort of companion animal will be looking at them. And there's a moment in our minds where you think, what is that animal thinking? Uh, is it looking at me for a specific reason? What is it demanding of me in its look? Um, and these are all questions that Derrida poses. But more specifically, he's also interested in, like Chandel said, the shame he feels. Why does he feel the shame? naked in front of an animal where is this shame coming from is it shame about the fact that he even has that shame Mm -hmm. in itself Um, which becomes a strange double structure a double movement of shame from the animal's look but then shame from his own look of realizing he's being looked at by an animal Um, and it's that double movement I think which Derrida struggles with which he has to wonder at what point does the double movement reflect his own position as a human in front of the animal, or does it come from the spark that is the animal's gaze to begin with?
1: So, a large part of this is you know, why this becomes an important move, not just in terms of thinking about um, the animal's look, but it, it takes us right away into the question of how we figure animality um and he does this through thinking through what nudity and nakedness means so um there's an idea that he's grappling with that being naked recognizing your own nudity is um specific to human humankind's, human kinds human human kinds human beings human beings okay and um so that shame becomes really complicated and visible through uh, thinking what this nudity actually means and as it attaches to the category of animal, as it creates the category of human.
0: Okay, excellent. So I'm just gonna pose um, sort of two quick questions for you guys that are less about the text, but strike me as possibly really important um, for the field, given the way you've introduced the field and this text's relationship to it. So I'm wondering, uh, first, Chandel, and these are just really simple questions um, far below like the cognitive uh, level that you guys are working at, so hopefully you'll we'll be able to answer them with relative ease. Um, you mentioned that Gerard is really careful about Um, describing this cat as a real cat, a cat with a body, a physical cat and not an idea. And I'm wondering if that is something that is important or resonates through the field or if that's just particular to this
1: essay. Yeah, absolutely. That is important to the field. Um, uh, I mean, if you're thinking through any sort of uh, political theories, whether that's race or gender or sexuality, whatever you want to look at, Um, The embodied experience is really important to the ethics and social justice. Um, It's not just uh, the idea of a woman that we're talking about. We're talking about um, the lived lives of individual women and what they mean. And this is true in this case of uh, his cat. And the moment that generates the thinking that that initiates all of this, this, the spark, so to speak, is um, that living cat. And what becomes really powerful within the field is that when you are accounting for these living animals, you're not, this isn't just theoretical work. We have to actually look at um, those, those beings that live very short, miserable lives in slaughterhouses or in laboratories, you know, in universities.
0: Sure, absolutely. Or would that extend to um, questions about conditions of life for, for example, like a domesticated cat, also for pets or Animals that we kind of manipulate
1: in the everyday, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those, I'm, I've heard it framed this way: those lives, animal lives, that we fetishize. You know, what, what are we doing to them? Um, the conditions of life, you know, means for many of us that we spay or neuter our cats. What are the ethics of that? Right. So. Yeah.
2: And also, um, because the embodiment is absolutely right, um, and it's something that Derrida focuses on. But he also focuses on the fact that it's a singular cat. It's that cat specifically. And it's so it's that aspect of specificity and singularity that becomes important because we tend to homogenize animals when we think of them. We think of the animal kingdom or um, animals as this large group that is all the same and then humans are separate from it, though also sort of related to it in the sense that we are either rational animals or animals with language, etc., Um, but what Derek is trying to point out as well is that through embodiment, there's also a singularity to animals and this cat is not a representative for the animal kingdom. It is as drastically different from other animals as a human would be. Um, and I think that point is something that we always, or we often don't think of in our everyday. We do see animals around us and we take them for granted or we don't. Recognize them as a specific being in and of themselves, but more so a part of a larger web of animal life in the world
1: Yeah, which I think refers back to even thinking like a pet. I own my pet uh, I've worked really hard to shift my language into saying that I share my life with or my home with the, the dogs that I share that space with um, but it's awkward and it's clumsy and this is where Derrida goes with this, with his um, his term, "animal."
2: Yeah, um, that's another big part of the uh, essay is this neologism he makes, this made up word that mixes animal with the French mo for word, um, trying to highlight the fact that animal is just a word. And it's a word that does a sort of conceptual violence to animal life because it homogenizes all animals um I think one of the things that Derrida hopes that people hear when they hear the word animo, especially because it's a homophone for the French word animo, which is the plural, um, is that we hear that plural, but also recognize that in that plural, it's simply a language trick. It's a aspect of language that doesn't properly represent how our lived experience or our lived uh, world wherein animals do exist in the singular, and they are not a homogenized group but differentiated just as vastly as humans are from any animal.
1: Mm -hmm. Even more so. I mean we have the species of human and then all these many many species within that outside category, outsider category of animal. So um, it's, it's a reflection of human sort of arrogance that we can comfortably use the word animal.
0: Alex, a few minutes ago, you mentioned when we are talking about this opening scene with the cat and the feeling of shame. Um, and you mentioned that the feeling of shame is kind of unsettled, that it's you're not, um, that Derrida or the subject is uncertain about whether he feels shame because of something that comes from the cat or that instance, or feel shame about feeling shame. Um, and I wonder if, um, you can talk about how that instance relates to the question in the field or the idea that humans are projecting um, kind of their own sense of the world onto the animal.
2: Yeah, um, that's something that struck me as very interesting about Dara's piece when I first read it, was his dismissal of animal rights. Because I think that many people who are interested in animals or are part of uh, critical animal studies kind of as a base, our proponents of animal rights, um, in the most general sense. But what you actually find is that a lot of philosophical work or theoretical work on animal rights is an attempt to afford this category of human rights onto animal life. And the way Derrida puts it actually makes little sense when that shouldn't be the case, or maybe we should question whether that should be the case, because there is this difference between every species of animal, like we were saying, and humans, so that there's this network, this web, you could say, of, uh, of difference between species. And in that sense, at what point should we feel comfortable applying values that we place on our own lives onto lives of beings so radically different than us? Um, I think that aspect of shame does kind of come into it. Uh, Derrida probably sees it as a sort of sentimental feeling, which he wonders uh, where its source comes from. But when it comes to animal rights, I think his concern is more uh, easily uh, pointed to. We can recognize a little easier that animal rights is clearly a discourse that we've created around the animal, around thinking about the animal. But it clearly has its roots in something that is very anthropocentric something that is very much grounded in our idea of the human
1: mm-hmm. and i think i think this is a really interesting point um that the shame sort of comes around imposing uh, a rights system uh or a right a value of rights um onto animals and like alex said that there's this questioning of a sort of sentimental moment um the focus is not necessarily on what to do with that shame, which a lot of feminist writers working through this text, working with these ideas, take that as a starting point to move into a system of thinking that's based on an ethics of care. So your choices, your action actually, is motivated um, by the recognition of what those feelings are. Um, and it honors those feelings, I guess you might say. Uh, Derrida isn't really going in that direction, and so that, that has been part of uh, the critique against his work.
2: Yeah, and I can definitely see that, um, because I think one of the more general critiques people play against Derrida is that his work is unproductive. It doesn't generate solutions, um, and it doesn't generate conclusions as easily as other texts. Um, and that's definitely apparent in this one as well, there is this moment with his cat, but what exactly do we take from that moment as a sort of way to apply to our daily lives? Um, I'm not sure if he ever reaches that
1: moment. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put any money on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you guys for your. Um for your time here today and
0: for your thoughts and we'll pick this up again next week and talk a little bit more about um, the text in the everyday